Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. For centuries, the land of Israel was a dream, simply a dream. Imagine generations before us lying in bed before falling asleep on a Shabbat evening. From their scattered homes in every continent and corner of the world, Israel? A dream. When someone asks me how life is in Boca Raton, I often answer, living the dream. And for the past 75 years, since the birth of the modern state of Israel, the Jewish people have been living a dream. It is a dream born from so many nightmares quashed revolts, crusades, inquisitions, expulsions, pogroms, and holocaust. And it is a dream born from unyielding hope and faith that a people whom Haman described in the book of Esther as scattered and dispersed among the other peoples could one day be gathered from the four corners of the earth and return home to Jerusalem. It is a dream captured in the words of Israel's national anthem, to be a free people in our own land. What a privilege it was for me and Temple Bethel to host Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist Brett Stevens in conversation as we celebrated Israel's 75th birthday. I am grateful to be able to share a recording of that live conversation and the essential questions we discussed that evening. Brett Stevens has been a columnist for the New York Times since 2017, after a long career with the Wall Street Journal, where he was deputy editorial page editor, and for 11 years a foreign affairs columnist. Before that, he was editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. He also edits a new journal of Jewish ideas called Sapir, a Jewish quarterly published by the Maimonides Fund. We're so excited to have everyone here and extremely excited to have our guest with us tonight, Brett Stevens. We're really, really in for a a treat tonight. This is going to be the first of uh, many opportunities we will have to meet extraordinary thinkers over the course of this year as we celebrate the 75th anniversary of the modern miracle and the birth of the modern state of Israel. Miracles are all around us at all times, and most of the time we're completely oblivious. Raise your hand if you have any memory of a world without the state of Israel. Not that many. Think about what that means. In the history of the Jewish people, that the majority of the people in this room have no memory of a world without a Jewish state. That is simply extraordinary. And we who are privileged to live in this time and this place are even more privileged. And today we're going to have a chance to reflect on that miracle because the miracle, like most miracles, has a lot of facets and is complicated and complex. And part of the way that you discover what makes a miracle really miraculous is not just by looking at how shiny it is on the outside, but looking at how amazing it is in its complexity and the challenges. Uh, which we'll have a chance to explore with this extraordinary thinker. I don't know that there is really anyone more level-headed and insightful about what's going on in our world today and certainly about the modern state of Israel than Brett Stevens, and we're very, very grateful to have him with us this evening. Brett, you have such an interesting background growing up partly in Mexico City 
And tell us a little bit about how you discovered your own Judaism, your own Zionism that led you ultimately even to be the editor of the Jerusalem Post. Uh, I was probably a Zionist before I was Jewish. I had a father who uh, was indifferent to and sometimes contemptuous of organized religion. My mother had been a hidden child in the Holocaust uh, in uh, northern Italy and had come to the United States as a displaced person in 1950. And she had family that was in Israel. And so we had family ties to uh, Israel, closer family ties to Israel on the other side of the world than we did to the synagogue we very, very occasionally went to in, in Mexico City. And so from the age of nine when I first visited Israel to 15 when I spent an unforgettable summer on Kibbutz Hefziba, not far from uh, Afula and Bechan, I felt a connection to Israel which was powerful. The only, I only be, started to become aware of the intellectual depth and philosophical majesty of Judaism as a student at the University of Chicago under a man named Leon Cass, who wrote, who's written two, I think, of the best exegetical books about Genesis and Exodus. And then I, this, this sort of came alive to me, this, this connection that I had. But again, it was mainly my strong affinity for Israel as just a kind of a terrific and unique country that drew me to it. After college, I was uh, posted to Belgium, to Brussels, for the Wall Street Journal's European pages. And providentially, or by happenstance, I was asked to start covering Israel. This was just before the beginning of the Second Intifada. So I started going out there on a regular basis as a, as a writer, as a journalist. Then the Intifada erupted, and I had a strong sense that most of my peers in the media were getting the story wrong. So I started covering it intensively. A couple years later, a phone call out of the blue when I was 27 years old from the publisher of the Jerusalem Post inviting me to become the editor. And so it seemed like an, an offer I, couldn't, I shouldn't refuse. So I, I want to ask, there's so much that we can talk about as we look at Israel's 75th birthday, but I want to focus the beginning of our conversation a little bit on sort of what's happening mm -hmm. in, in recent months and today. So in Israel's most recent election, in November, the fifth in four years, something seemed to change. The other elections seemed to be deadlocked and they would sort of flip center right. Center. There was always, you know, this back and forth. The previous government, though, for the first time, didn't include anyone from Likud. And it was not led by Prime Minister Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. It included right-wing leaders, people to the right of Bibi liberal parties, and even for the first time, an Arab-Israeli right. delegation. So that government was replaced by the most right-wing coalition in Israel's history, including prominent ultra-hard-right leaders who previously would never have been considered for leadership posts, like Edomar Ben-Gvir. So like, what happened? How did that come to be? What was it that happened in Israel that brought this very different government into power? I think it's important to look at the mechanics of what happened because underlying the, the drama, there was a flip of a few thousand votes and um, a failure of some of the parties on the left and uh, some of the Arab parties to get above the thresholds. All of you are familiar with the Israeli system. 
you have to get, if you're running a slate of candidates as a party, you have to get above a certain number of votes just to get in. There's a threshold, and some of the parties on the left fell just below the threshold by, by a space of a few thousand votes. So if voting had been different by, I think, 30 to 40,000 votes, Yair Lapid would still be the prime minister of Israel, and none of this would have happened. I emphasize that to say that it, it, it really turned almost on a feather. And the mandate that Prime Minister Netanyahu claims he has isn't really much of a mandate. On paper, he seems to have 64 seats, which is not a huge majority, but it's a, you know, three seats in, 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 in the majority. But it's not, it's not a substantial mandate. He then went ahead and misread his mandate as a, a license to fundamentally alter the kind of compacts, uh, basic compact of, of, of Israeli society. And all of you in this room, I'm sure, have been following what, what, what has happened then. Another aspect of something else that changed is it used to be the case that Netanyahu could find partners to his left. Uh, so his first defense minister after 2009, when he came back to office, was Ehud Barak, who of course had defeated him just a decade earlier after his, his first term. Political rivals, but personal friends, Barak had been Bibi's commander in Sayeret Makal, as, as, as an Israeli commando. So, you know, blood is thicker than political water, I guess. Bibi, over the space of 12 years, alienated all of his old allies, both to his left and even many of those somewhat to his right. So when he turned to these extremists, like Ben Gavir or this character Smotrich, it's because he no one would sit with him anymore. He basically alienated everyone who had previously been willing to sit with him in a government. Benny Gantz, Naftali Bennett, Yair Lapid had been finance minister in one of, of, of uh, Bibi's governments. So he found himself with no, no friends other than these Schmendricks on the far right. They're really Schmendricks. I mean, it's almost too much of a compliment to call a guy like Ben Gavir a fascist. I mean, look at the guy. And, and now he, he has discovered very quickly that the limits of his power. And unless something changes quite dramatically in Israeli politics, and things could always change, I don't see him succeeding or thriving or even lasting much farther as prime minister. He's, he was prime, he's been prime minister longer than Ben-Gurion was in office. People are tired of him, especially now. If an election were held today, Benny Gantz would be prime minister. If there wasn't much of a change, just disorganization of parties on the left that uh, allowed parties like Merits not to clear the threshold and other parties in terms of their missteps. Now you see this incredible convulsion that's been happening in the wake of Benjamin Tiaru's return to power and the proposed legislation that would make very significant changes to Israel's judiciary. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis are taking to the streets every Saturday night. It's become like the thing you have to do. At the same time, we've seen other demonstrations that also number in the hundreds of thousands of people who support these reforms, people on the right. The response in Israel has been staggering, with dozens of military leaders actively urging the government not to pass these reforms, Air Force reserve pilots refusing to come to reserve duty, and even the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, who's usually not a political 
person in his own right, and certainly that's not sort of typical for the defense minister in any case, urging the government to backtrack for which he was fired, which prompted almost a general strike that shut down the airport for a little while, which caused the, the government to sort of put the pause, a very temporary pause on this legislation. And now you're seeing things like leaders in Israel, colleagues of yours like Matty Friedman, Yossi Klein Alevi, Rabbi Daniel Gordas, who are writing an open letter to us in America saying, hey, this is not one you want to sit out. They wrote in their letter, this is no judicial reform, but a dramatic alteration that would make Israel look less like Canada and more like Hungary. In your most recent edition of a phenomenal new journal that you are editing called Sapir, everyone go to sapirjournal.org and you will, you will read the most incredible, beautiful essays around all different kinds of issues that are impacting us as Jews in the current period. But the most recent edition is about Israel's 75th. And in that edition, you have... Professor Shani Moore, who warns that these reforms are an existential threat to Israel as a democracy. And then you have Professor Avi Bell, who says, no, the reality is that there's a judicial aristocracy in Israel, and this is not judicial reform. This is making it right. It's the judicial system itself that's a greater threat to Israel and its democracy. Help us understand what this is all about. So the idea of judicial reform in itself is not a crazy idea. Israel has an unusually powerful judiciary uh, by the standards of parliamentary systems. So in Britain, Canada, other parliamentary systems, you have a doctrine of, of parliamentary supremacy. Ultimately, what parliament chooses to do overrules whatever the courts decide. Here, of course, in the United States, we have judicial review. The court can overrule statutes, laws, and, and so on. Israel is a parliamentary system, and yet it has a judiciary that has powers that are more closely resemble the American system. And this didn't come about through a democratic decision. It came about through essentially the, the will and ingenuity of Aaron Barak, the former president of the Israeli Supreme Court, who did this kind of more or less on his own. And it is reasonable in a democracy for the people to ask what is the correct balance between the legislative, executive, and judicial functions. So it's not a, judicial reform in and of itself is not crazy. It's not even necessarily wrong. The problem is, why is this being carried out now? Who is it being carried out for? And is it worth the price that it is exacting on Israeli society? If this reform weren't tainted by the overwhelming and justifiable suspicion that Netanyahu is carrying it out for the sake of his own legal predicaments, because he faces charges of, of corruption in, in, in a number of cases, or for the sake of his friends in government, people like Aryeh Derry, who's a convicted tax cheat, he's head of the Shas, ultra-Orthodox Shas party, Israelis would be able to have a normal conversation about it. The other thing that's worrisome is that when you're undertaking changes that are this profound, you want to do it on more than just the strength of a brute parliamentary majority. This should call you know, a national conference together with opposition leaders and government leaders all represented. Instead, it was just the willfulness of one party and really just 
a handful of ideologues in that party, a guy named uh, Levin, the, the, the minister of the judiciary, was kind of trying to ram it through. You mentioned, you used a word with which I disagree. You talked about the convulsions in Israeli society. I think this is Israel's finest hour. Israel has had its finest hour at its 75th birthday. Look around the world. In most democracies today, the center of the democracy is bending to the fringe. Essentially, the Republicans are more right-wing, the Democrats are more left-wing, you can look around other democracies, the center's bending to the fringe, that's unhealthy. Look at the 700,000 people who came out into the streets on the day that the defense minister, Gallant, was fired, waving Israeli flags. 700,000 people is the equivalent of 25 million Americans protesting. To give you a sense of the scale, the largest single-day protest in American history was the Women's March in 2017. That was five million Americans. In Israel's case, five times proportionally that number came out to defend what they saw as the most essential component of a democracy, which is some check on unrestrained majoritarianism in the system. And not only did they do it, they did it peacefully. We've had a lot of protests in this country, huge property damages all around the country. Look at Seattle, Kenosha, Chicago. Did any of you see any reports of homes being trashed, stores being looted, people being hurt in Israel's protests? Not one. Okay, maybe, you know, maybe here and there something happened, but 25 million people, if 25 million Americans had come out to protest in violent opposition to a government, I bet the day after, in this country, there have been some ugly sights on American streets. Nothing. They came out waving Israeli flags and the government folded. It means the fringes of Israeli society were forced to bend to the center. And that is the essence of a healthy, vigorous democracy and of citizens who care enough about their fundamental rights to put themselves out in the streets weekend after weekend, night after night, to say, this Israel is and will remain a democratic state. So what is it, I, I agree with you fundamentally, uh, mostly because I had no, almost all my Israeli friends are always out there every Shabbat, Monday Shabbat. What are they fighting for? What is it that the government has proposed to do that is, is bringing all these people out? Look, democracy has two senses, right? On the one hand, democracy is the rule of the people and the people are the majority, right? And we all understand that. Except in Florida, where if you don't win a majority, you still claim you've won an election, <laughs> at least some character down the road uh, from here, up the road, uh, one way or the other. Sorry, Florida. So there's a principle of majoritarianism, but democracy is not democracy unless it respects the rights of the, minor, of the temporary political minority, and it, unless it respects the rights of the individual. And because Israel is such a small country, it never really had a system, as we do here in the United States, divided powers, both horizontally and vertically. There's the Knesset, and the Knesset is really ruled by the governing coalition, and if you have a strong prime minister, he rules the Knesset. It's, it's really one guy who ultimately counts. So the Supreme Court was the only check and balance 
against that overweening majoritarianism. And you know, the, the people who are in the majority who are proposing reform say, you know, the, Avi Bell, you mentioned, the, the, the judiciary has intervened in all kinds of ways. And you look at it, the judiciary has intervened in very few ways over the last 20 years. And consistently, it has intervened for the sake of good government and individual rights. And that's a healthy thing. Now, what Israel really needs is a constitution, an ideal outcome to a crisis. You know, Rahm Emanuel used to say, never let a crisis go to waste. If we, we want to make sure this crisis doesn't go to waste, Israel ought to convene a constitutional convention that can draft, that can turn its basic laws, which are a kind of a quasi-constitution, into a formal constitution and formalize the powers of the court to defend individual rights. One of the more contentious aspects of the reform is it would have given the Knesset the ability to overturn a decision of the court with just 61 votes. My argument is make it 80 votes, like the American system, a two-thirds majority. If an overwhelming majority of the Knesset says what the Supreme Court does, has done, violates our democratic sense of what needs to be done in a given situation, okay, I can understand that. That seems to me a, a proper balance. And you can think of other formula for figuring that out. But that's, that's the outcome that, we, that I, sh I hope we can have. So thinking about how Israel intended to have a constitution and then never really got around to it, other things got in the way. Uh, you know, Israel has done some incredibly remarkable things. And you write in the spring issue, last year's spring issue of Sapir, you wrote that the Jewish state has been nearly the only post-colonial state that has flourished in its independence. It's welcomed millions of refugees as new citizens. Its GDP per capita is higher than that of Britain or France. It's an anchor of regional security. It's done all this while maintaining, for the most part, democratic institutions, as we've talked about. And so, as you look back over 75 years, what are the three things you think Israel got right? Well, it's more than three. I'm um, sure there are, but if you had to pick three. At no point in Israel's history did it become either a civil or a military dictatorship. Israel's peer group, we tend to think of Israel as, say, Portugal or, you know, the Netherlands, you know, small, modern country. But Israel's peer group of nations is Pakistan, India, Burma, uh, Algeria, Kenya. All of those countries, every single one of them, folded into a dictatorship, military or civil, at one point or other. Israel maintained fidelity to democratic norms and gradually, imperfectly, but gradually made sure to expand the franchise, not just you know, to Israeli Arabs, but to a, a real franchise, to parts of the population that had been marginalized one way or the other. Uh, so the Mizrahi population, quite obviously, but I, I'm about to go to Ethiopia on Saturday to accompany the last group of Falashmura back to Israel, uh, the Ethiopian community, integrate them, integrate them as well. So it, it lived up to the promise of democracy. I think the second thing is Israel was strong. And strength, at the end of the day, is the coin of the realm in political, in, in, in geopolitical terms. I mean, this nation of, of shopkeepers and intellectuals 
turned itself into this extraordinary military power in a way that nowadays we sort of take for granted, that Israel was able to become a power. You know, I was once in a debate with Peter Beinart before he became really, you know, off the, uh, walked off the ledge. And we were each asked, what about Israel do you like the most? And he said something like, well, the kibbutzim or something like that. And I said, nuclear weapons. And I mean that. You know, my mother was a hidden child. It was a hidden child, a little girl being pursued by evil around the corner from her. That's not going to happen again. That's because of power. And Israel cultivated it. And the third thing is that Israel was able to keep two things in a kind of dynamic tension that are not just, and this is not just a feature of Israel, it's a feature of Jewish life. It was able to maintain a concept of social, cultural, religious, and you might say civilizational cohesion, an idea of what it means to be a Jew, at the same time preserving a culture of argument and debate. And that, that tension, that willingness to mix it up, to think afresh, to disagree, that's the heart of a vigorous democracy with a larger idea of being a family, of belonging for all the disagreements, of belonging to that same precious unit of Jews. That's an extraordinary miracle that Israel has so far been able to, to pull off. If I had a fourth thing, I just have to say this briefly. When I lived in Israel 20 years ago, the people felt like the country was going the way of Argentina economically. It is just astounding that Israel is now such a powerhouse, a dynamo in the world of startups, high tech, all kinds of, all kinds of things. People used to say, how do you make a small fortune in Israel? You arrive with a large fortune, right? Now you want to make some money? Go to Israel. You're going to, you know, that's, it's a land of opportunity. So Israel is not just a refuge for the destitute. It's a magnet for the talented. It's interesting that you, you mentioned that about its economic strength. I was speaking with our local director of Israel Bonds, who was telling me that he actually has the capacity to sell more bonds than Israel wants to float. If you can, for those of you who remember when no one would loan money to Israel and you had to, you know, buy your charity. own Israel bonds, that's what my grandfather did. Nowadays, Israel bonds has fewer bonds than people actually want to buy. So now I'm going to ask you, of course, the reverse. In 75 years, thank God the Israelis are not their Palestinian neighbors who never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. But what are the three missed opportunities? What are the three things in 75 years that Israel really got wrong? I don't know if there are three. Um, <laughs> look, the obvious answer is that Israel has not been able to resolve its differences with its nearest neighbors, the Palestinians. That answer has to be qualified by the fact that the Palestinians have not been able to resolve their differences with their nearest neighbors. And the Palestinians could resolve those differences if maybe they stopped firing rockets and turning towns and cities into havens for, for terrorism. If Gaza spent more of its time manufacturing pipes for agriculture than turning pipes into pipe bombs. That being said, the settlement enterprise, while I'm not a 
component in all respects. I mean, if you're really being strict about it, East Jerusalem or the Wailing Wall, as they quote the Jewish quarter in, in the old city, is a quote settlement. French Hill is a quote uh, settlement. But the settlement enterprise was allowed to become lawless. Settlements would be established illegally and then they would be retroactively legalized. That's bad for democracy, contempt for the rule of law. I think the second thing is the inability to properly reach an understanding with the Haredi population, Haredi leaders, to make sure that while Israel honored its promise 70 years ago to be able to make that side of Jewish life flourish again after the, the, the decimation of the Holocaust, at some point enough is enough. You cannot have a huge population of young men who don't pay taxes, don't have jobs, and don't go to the army. It is outrageous. And, and look, you know, I understand that there is argument to be made in any society. Look, in America, we have conscientious objectors. There are all kinds of carve-outs, right? But the way in which the Haredi community has become a kind of a, a society unto itself is really problematic. And it's particularly problematic because the demographics are troubling. You know, the Haredi population may be 20% of Israel's Jewish population in the space of a few years. And I guess the third aspect would be uh, Israeli Arabs. It's two million Israelis are Arab citizens. And you've had a situation for too many decades in which there was a kind of a tacit agreement that the Jewish state didn't want the Israeli Arabs integrating too much, and Israeli Arabs didn't want to be integrated too much, and they kind of lived separate and apart. I think that's just absolutely untenable. First of all, Israeli Arabs have a tremendous amount to, to contribute. If you go to Israeli hospitals, for instance, they're deeply integrated into the health sector, increasingly into the law sector. Israel should start finding ways to bring Israeli Arabs, some of them do actually serve quietly, into the, uh, into the Israeli military. But it is shameful and shocking that the Israeli police essentially treat Israeli Arab neighborhoods like no-go zones, and when murders take place, they're increasingly common, they go unsolved. And that's treating nearly a quarter of your, or fifth of your population as if they're not full citizens. So that has to change too. One final caveat though, okay? Israel is 75 years old, do some math. Where was America at its 75th birthday? Well, Millard Fillmore was president. It was 1851. You don't have to solve everything in the first 75 years. The United States was a slaveholding republic for the first 89 years of its history, a two, if not three-tiered system with Jim Crow nearly to its 200th birthday. So the expectation that Israel is going to get everything right in 75 years doesn't square with the experience of other democracies. These things take time. For sure. Speaking a little bit about the relationship that Israel has with its Arab neighbors, with its Arab citizens, with Palestinians that live within their control zones, if not their borders, Micha Goodman, my teacher from the Shalom Hartman Institute, in his remarkable book that came out a few years ago, Catch 67, sort of captures the quagmire that Israel finds itself in. If Israel were to withdraw from the territories it captured in 1967, as many in the international community call for, 
Israel will quickly find Iranian rockets 12 miles from Tel Aviv. If Israel does not withdraw from those territories, then because of birth rates and demographic trends, Israel risks being able to hold as a true Jewish democracy. And as you note in, uh, in your writing, Esawi Fredj, Israel's first Arab Muslim cabinet member, wrote, Israel has many problems that must be solved, both within the Green Line and especially the occupied territories, but Israel is not an apartheid state. At the same time, you also note that Zionism cannot be true to its calling as a freedom struggle for Jews if that entails exercising a substantial degree of control over another people without their consent. So my question is, what's next for Israel and the Palestinian people? You have a Palestinian authority that is now in its 19th year of its fifth year term, and you, know, you have the growth of the settlement project, as you've mentioned, does that make a two-state solution truly impossible? What's next? Look, uh, there was some famous economist who once said, that which can't continue won't. It's tautological, but it's true. Eventually, this thing will get itself resolved. Look, Israel is like a plane that has only so much gas, and the problem is the nearest runway is at the, for the time being unusable. So it's circling and circling and circling, hoping to find a way to land. Now, I'm hopeful that the process that was started with the Abraham Accords of building peace with the Arab world, not from the inside out, that is to say from solving the Palestinian issue and then working outward towards the rest of the Arab world, but rather from the outside in, from drawing a circle of friendly Arab states around it so that it becomes increasingly more tenable to imagine some kind of Palestinian state or quasi-state, that that process could work out. We've had a hiccup now because Saudi Arabia doesn't quite know whether it wants to swing in the direction of Iran or swing in the direction of, of the West, but I'm, I'm fairly confident that over time the Saudis will understand that they're better off being friends with a strong Israel and with the West than with China and Iran. What Israel should do is Israel should make sure that when there is a viable Palestinian partner, a Palestinian president who doesn't want an endless intifada, a Palestinian president who, doesn't, who sees a future for the Palestinian people, which is not just militancy, terrorism, and extremism, but genuine uh, liberalism, democracy, and a desire to join the modern world, that when that Palestinian leadership comes into being, the conditions will still be present for a, Palestinian, a viable Palestinian state. So if it were up to me as a prime minister of Israel, I would say the settlements freeze right now. In some future, French Hill, East Jerusalem, it's gonna remain Israeli. There are some settlement blocks that, have, that are essentially cities right now. They will remain Israeli. They're close to the borders. It doesn't dramatically affect the shape of the West Bank. And we're not going to allow illegal settlements to keep popping up here and there and making a Palestinian state impossible. Why? Well, nothing might happen in the next five years, but we want to be sure that in 50 years, that Zionism can or in 25 years, at Israel's 100th birthday, let's say, that we can say that Zionism fulfilled its mission. We don't rule over others. Others don't rule over us. We are self-governing. 
Everyone who lives in the state of Israel, lives under Israeli rule, does so as a democratic citizen in a, in a free country. And I say this very mindful of the security uh, challenges, but also mindful that astonishing things take, can take place. 10 years ago, no one would have thought the United Arab Emirates would be hosting thousands of Israelis, 10, 10 flights or something like eight flights of, from Israel Day, would have seemed a pipe dream. Different leadership changed it. So we have to hold out the hope that we will get different leadership from the Palestinians, and at that point, Israel will have to be ready to make peace and to make concessions for it. You've also written that a Jewish state is not just a political and security concept, it is also a civilizational opportunity, a chance to, as you wrote, rediscover, re-articulate, and redevelop a uniquely Jewish way of thinking and being and doing in the world a means of finding out how a culture that was both stunted and enriched in its long exile can, with the benefit of sovereignty, create a healthier model of human community. At the same time, we've also seen Israel grow ever more rigid in its insistence on orthodoxy, or ultra-orthodoxy, as the only acceptable interpretations of Judaism that the government will promote. There seems to be a growing acrimony and a divide between the religious community and the secular community in Israel. So how does Israel flourish as a Jewish society if it deliberately undermines and squelches Jewish expressions that don't meet a narrow definition of what is permissibly Jewish, where the word reform is a slur and an insult that you would hurl at someone that you didn't like? Yeah, well, there's a lot of stupid stuff that happens. Uh, (laughs) There's a lot we don't like about Israel because Israel is not just an aspiration Israel is a reality. Israel is both, you know, the the miraculous nature of a Jewish state and Jewish civilization reborn after 2,000 years of exile and also a country with thieves and prostitutes, as someone once said, you know, a normal country. So a lot happens in the country. A lot of the discourse is ugly and unfortunate and there is unquestionable um, discrimination and contempt, especially along religious differences. There actually is a kind of a reform community in Israel. It's everyone who doesn't go to their orthodox shul, right? Which is, you know, a third of the country, easily, if not more. But when you live in Israel, when you spend time in Israel, what you find is a culture that is providing a density of Jewish thought, expression, argument, music, literature that would have been unimaginable, unimaginable throughout most of our history. All of it happening in Hebrew. By the way, you know, when Herzl imagined the the Jewish state in 1898 or whenever he wrote wrote that book, he just figured it would be ridiculous that people would speak Hebrew, just there'd be Jews who'd speak different languages and you'd get a train ticket that would be printed in German, French, English, and you know, Russian, or whatever. The idea that you'd have Hebrew as this common language is just astounding. So Israel is a factory for Jewish culture that is just stunning. And I really encourage those of you who go to, go to Israel, try to immerse yourself in contemporary Israeli culture. It's fabulous. Television is fa- I mean, you know it because you've watched Fauda, right? Or Stiesel, you know? I mean, Stiesel, look at Stiesel. It's just amazing. 
there's tons of that stuff coming out all, um, all the time. The film, the cinema is, is superb. So yes, I mean, Jews are obnoxious and rude and contemptuous of other Jews, and it's very lamentable, but it wouldn't be Jewish if it weren't obnoxious and rude and, you know. So let's talk a little bit about the relationship between Israel and the American diaspora, as you suggested. So there's a lot that's been written including by you, of the waning support for Israel among America's modern non-Orthodox Jews, especially among younger American Jews. Support for Israel is now used as a political wedge issue, which never used to happen the way it is today between Republicans and Democrats. What should we, who live in the diaspora, be doing to build support for Israel? How can we raise generations of Jews who not only care deeply about their Judaism, but who are Zionists? And are there things that Israel and Israelis should be doing to build stronger support for Israel among American and diaspora Jews? What do they owe us in as much as what do we owe them? There is a strain of Israeli society that looks at American Jewry as sort of soft and weak and totally out of touch. They should be mindful that Israel would never gotten, have gotten up off its feet had it not been for that soft, weak, and quote-unquote out-of-touch American uh, Jewry. There is also a portion of American Jewry that is soft, weak, and out-of-touch and says things about Israel which are stupid, nonsensical, and, and, and libelous. Right? When American Jews say, well, I can't support Israel because it's killing Palestinians. Please, do you think Israelis wake up every morning and say, let's find a Palestinian to kill? You know, how can you say, how can, they, how can an American Jew even think that, that his, his Israeli cousin wakes up in the morning and thinks, I'm going to go make the life of some Palestinian a misery? And there's, there's that attitude in American life which wants to look at Israel as a moral vanity. Israel was great when it was that plucky little underdog country that was on the verge of extinction and all the Israeli cousins were dirt poor and you felt sorry for them and you sent them your, your spare clothes. But now Israel's rich and powerful and successful and you don't like the fact that Israel exists not to showcase Jewish victimization but to end Jewish victimization by not tolerating attacks on its, on its cities and its people, right? And, and that has to change among American Jews, too. Now, how could we improve the relationship? There's, again, I say this, every opportunity, it's, birthright is not enough. Birthright is, birthright is great if your grandchild wants to go to Israel and hook up with a potentially attractive Jewish future spouse, right? It's a great little introduction. I don't, want to, I don't want to diminish birthright. It's done tremendous work. But find ways to spend a year. Take a year abroad during college and go to Hebrew U or Tel Aviv U or Haifa, you know, one of those schools. Find opportunities to spend a year or two of your life in Israel. Understand that Israel is not a caricature, for better and worse, by the way. It is, the country is is in every way a surprise. I was asked recently, a friend of mine was this kind of mocker, was taking a group of non-Jews to Israel. And he asked me to get on a Zoom call with his friends, talk about Israel. And I said, you know, in Israel there's a type of coffee, it's called afuch, meaning upside down, right? 
if you want to understand Israel, everything is upside down. All of your expectations are overthrown. You meet former Israeli commandos, tough guys, and it turns out they're on the political left because they've been dealing with Palestinian issues and they're like, we need a complete separation. And then you go to the gay pride parade and they're all on the far right because they're saying, if we didn't have Israel as a powerful country, you know, the Arab world would take over and you can't be a, a gay person in, in a society dominated by Israel, so Israel has to be strong. I've gone to settlements where everyone is like a grateful dead, hippy-dippy stoner, right? You know, who, who would have thought that? You're constantly finding surprises and that's, that's a level of intimacy with a society that you can only acquire when you spend substantial amounts of time there. So American Jews could help themselves, secular or religious, by, by being there for more than just two weeks at a, at a go. And Israel should remind itself that had it not been for crucial American support in 48 and 73 and 91 and other junctures in Israeli history, there might not be an Israel. And that's a tie that ought to bind. When you think about where we are, and, and you look at sort of what it is that's happening in the American Jewish community today, and in so many ways, the American Jewish community is, is a miracle. Here in Boca Raton, Temple Bethel was the first synagogue that was founded in 1967. We were still the only synagogue here 10 years later. Now there are two large reform synagogues and a smaller reform synagogue. There's two good-sized conservative synagogues. There's about a dozen different kinds of orthodox synagogues all across the different spectrum of orthodoxy. Uh, it's an amazing place and time to be a Jewish person. And at the same time, there's this you know, sense that Alan Dershowitz calls you know, the Jews the ever-dying people. And there's always this worry of what's going to happen to us as a people. When you look at the American Jewish community, and you've just uh, you know, begun work on this remarkable journal that's creating a portal for the expression of Jewish ideas, but also through your work at the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and as someone who's lived in the Jewish community in America and an observer of it, what do you see in the American Jewish community that gives you hope, and are there things that you wish the American Jewish community would do that we're not doing well enough? Oh, gosh, where do I start? Um, look, I'm very worried about the American Jewish community. If you go back 100 years, you would have found a thriving, strong Swedish-American community with its own network of Swedish Lutheran churches, Swedish-language newspapers. Swedish America was a strong, cohesive community. Where's Swedish America now? It doesn't exist. I mean, people will say, oh, I'm a quarter Swedish or whatever, but it's gone. The Jewish American community is not immune from those forces. I'll give you an, an example, uh, statistically or mathematically. There are 4.3 million American adults today who identify both religiously and culturally as Jewish. It's a larger number who identify culturally as Jewish, but not religiously and culturally. There are 8.6 million Americans, that's to say double that number, who have at least one Jewish parent. That means the attrition rate for American Jews is about 50% in the space of a single generation. This is unsustainable if you want American Jewry to have, forgive me, the, the look and color of this audience, I mean color in terms of your clothing, that resemble this audience. 
What will American Jewry look like if these trends continue? Well, there will be fewer and fewer of you, right? And there will be more people dressed in black. Because the only side of American Jewish life who, that are being fruitful and multiplying are our Haredi cousins. The American, the secular American Jewish woman has fewer children than the secular American woman. In the secular community, the Jewish community is the least fertile community. I mean, I'm just talking about, these are demographic facts, right? The secular Jewish world is not meeting the so-called replacement rate in terms of just having children, and that's completely to one side of the number of children who are intermarrying. So that, that there's an intermarriage rate in the last 10 years that's north of 60%. So you're not going to be able to, it's going to be Swedish America if we're not careful. So we have to find a way, not we, you. That is to say, the affiliated, non-Orthodox, American Jewish community has to find a way of bringing young Jews into the fold so that their Judaism is not only a meaningful, but the most meaningful aspect of their identity. And we have to find a way for young American Jews to say, you know, being Jewish is just, it's something I value so much. It's so terrific. It brings me such depth and meaning and a sense of purpose in my life that I couldn't imagine having a family that was not in some ways, a practicing Jewish family. Now, the good news is, I think the resources are there. And we are a nation that has been able to ingeniously reinvent itself generation after generation. This challenge isn't new. You mentioned the ever-dying Jewish community. You know, 19th century German Jewry, same kind of, same kind of issue. Now, there, the tragedy is that German Jewry only rediscovered its Jewishness thanks to anti-Semitism. And we haven't talked about anti-Semitism so far, but that may end up being how the American Jewish community finds the cohesion and the glue and the sense of what it's about. And that, that, that's a shame. We should be Jews not just because people hate us. We should be Jews because we love our people and we love our traditions and all the rest. I'm deeply appreciative of that message. We were blessed to have Dara Horn with us for Slichot, and the message that is implied in her magnificent book, People Love Dead Jews, is that we should love our Judaism, and that's the best answer to anti-Semitism. Though we are seeing a continual surge in anti-Semitism that is deeply worrisome. If you had come to Temple Beth El 10 years ago, you wouldn't have seen a gate or a fence. You wouldn't have seen armed guards protecting the campus, both here and on our satellite campus. And we've had to take a more aggressive posture in order to make sure that people here are safe and feel safe. Just today, a member of our congregation staff had his mezuzah pulled off his apartment door and a swastika etched in his door in an apartment complex, you know, right in the middle of Boca Raton. What are you seeing that is bringing anti-Semitism to the fore in, in this way, and what can be done about it? That's a terrible story. I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. Look, I, I think there are, there are two kinds of anti-Semitism afoot in America today. 
there's the anti-Semitism we see, and there's the anti-Semitism we sense. And what we see, I think, is only a small fraction of what we sense, what's sort of in the air. I, I kind of came up with this expression, anti-Semitic adjacencies. That's to say, beliefs and ideas which aren't obviously anti-Semitic, but they're anti-Semitic adjacent. So for instance, when people start talking about the globalists, right, who are trying to replace hardworking Americans with cheap labor from South America or wherever, they might be saying globalists, but to me that sounds like Jew, right? And in fact, in Charlottesville, they were very candid. Jews will not replace us. What did, what did that phrase mean? It meant that Jewish globalists were not going to replace average Americans with Latin Americans. That was the message. So this whole talk about globalism, which has taken foot, I'm sorry to say, or taken hold in the Republican Party, is an anti-Semitic adjacency. On the other hand, you look at the progressive side. All this talk about privilege, right? Privilege, people used to talk about success in America. Oh, congratulations, you worked your way up from nothing and now you're successful. You've lived the American dream. That used to be the way in which we spoke about wealth and, and achievement in America. Now the way we speak about it is why, why are you so privileged as if somehow it's unearned? Now if you look at privileged people in America, a disproportionate number of quote privileged people are going to be, are, are in fact Jewish. And so that's another anti-Semitic adjacency. And then of course there's the challenge of anti-Zionism. Now as far as I'm concerned, anti-Zionism is the anti-Semitism of our day. It's true, you can, you can make the argument that there are Jews who are anti-Zionists. I get it. There's some Meshuggah rabbis in Muncie for highly uh, abstruse reasons are anti-Zionists. And you can make the argument that there are anti-Semites who are pro-Zionists, kick all the Jews out, send them to their, their homeland. But by and large, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are identical belief systems. And I'll explain why. What is anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism isn't just a bigotry. Anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory. The anti-Semite holds that Jews are by their nature imposters and swindlers, and so therefore must be stopped by all means necessary, including violence. The 19th century anti-Semite said that the Jews of, say, Germany presented themselves as good German citizens loyal German citizens, but they weren't actually German. They were Semites. That's why the term anti-Semite took hold. They're from the Middle East. And what are they doing? They're trying to swindle honest Germans out of their patrimony, out of their culture, out of their wealth, and so on. That was the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. These Jews who call themselves Wilhelm and Gunther and whatever, they're from the Holy Land, and they're here to take your, pick your pocket. What does the anti-Zionist say? Well, the anti-Zionist says the Jews are imposters and swindlers. What, how are they imposters? Well, they claim to be from the Middle East. They claim to be natives of the land of Israel. But they're not from the land of Israel. They're from Poland. They just arrived here. They have no connection to this land. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to swindle Palestinians out of their land. It's the same thing. The only thing that's different is the anti-Semite says the Jews from the Middle East, and the anti-Zionist says the Jews from Europe. Otherwise, same conspiracy theory. So we should be clear-sighted that anti-Zionism is not just some 
political slogan. By the way, anti-Semitism was a political slogan, okay? Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism in, in a fashionable garb made palatable for 21st century minds. And all anti-Zionism today is that same thing. If, if you want to prove to me that you're an anti-Zionist who gets a special exemption from being an anti-Semite, I'm willing to have that discussion, but on the whole, my default assumption is, is if you believe the state of Israel has no right to exist, you're an anti-Semite. I want to have nothing to do with you. I'm going to try to see if I can sort of combine uh, a few of the different questions that came from our community. One of the questions had to do with the disappointment of seeing Saudi Arabia turn back toward Iran as opposed to falling in line with some of the other nations that came around to Israel's side with the Abraham Accords. And in addition, there is a question of, as Iran continues to inch its way towards nuclear weapons, and I think there is an understanding that Iran could have a nuclear weapon pretty much whenever it wants one, is war with Iran inevitable? What is it that Israel should be doing vis-a-vis not just Iran, but the rest of the Arab world, starting with where the Abraham Accords sort of have created a foothold in places like the Emirates and Morocco and other places, but what's next? How should Israel play that, and especially as we see Iran continuing to inch its way to becoming a nuclear state? I've always wondered what the antonym of inevitable is. Is it evitable? Look, a uh, couple things. With respect to the Saudis, I don't know. Uh, I'm not prepared to read too deeply into this rapprochement with Iran. It seemed to me mainly an effort to cool down tensions. The Sunni world and the Shiite world have animosities that extend for over 1,300 years. Some parley with a Chinese foreign minister isn't going to change that fundamental strategic interests are simply at odds. I think that reality is going to find many ways of reasserting itself, whether it's in Yemen, where they're diametrically at odds, violently at odds, or in Lebanon or some other place, that reality is going to, going to make itself clear. Now, with respect to Iran's nuclearization, you know, bear in mind, I've been covering this topic for over 20 years, and Iran has been three years or four years from acquiring a nuclear weapon for the past 20 years. So something has happened in, in that period, known among Israelis as another mysterious explosion in Iran, uh, an Iranian scientist meeting an untimely end on, on some godforsaken uh, road. Question is, so obviously, you know, the Israelis have been conducting these intelligence operations and the ideas... You kick the can down the, down the road, three years, four years, five years, see how long that lasts. Maybe they can only pursue that strategy so much, you know, for, for so long, and, and at some point it becomes untenable. But I do, I'm not a fan of Bibi. I've known him for over 20 years. He's not my favorite human being. I think Bibi thinks that if he came on this earth for one reason, it was to make, it's to make sure that Iran does not acquire the means to destroy the state of Israel. In that, I'm fully confident that he's committed to a mission to not let that happen. And whether it's by clandestine means or more overt means, I'm confident that Iran is not going to acquire 
a nuclear weapon. One question. My mouth to God's ear, right? Right. Amen to that. Uh, Another question was, how do you see the relationship between America and Israel change as administrations change? from, if we just look in more the last 30 years, from Clinton to Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden, how does America's relationship with Israel change, or does it not really change? Does the leader of the administration not really impact deeply sort of how America relates to Israel? Look, I can't think of a single American presidency in my lifetime that has not had a crisis with Israel. So right now, Biden won't invite Bibi to the White House, crisis with Israel. Trump actually had a good relationship with Israel, but if you'd given him a second term, there would have been a crisis with Israel. Obama, crisis with Israel the whole time, Bibi going to Congress, poisoned relations. George W. Bush, Ariel, that was a good relationship for the most part, but Ariel Sharon, right after 9-11, gave some speech saying, you know, we don't want to see Munich all over again, crisis with Israel. Clinton and Netanyahu in his first term, crisis with Israel. George H.W. Bush and James Baker and Yitzhak Shamir, crisis with Israel. Reagan, 1983, the invasion of Lebanon, crisis with Israel. Carter, crisis with Israel. Ford, the reassessment with Israel. It's endless, okay? So I take these crises at the diplomatic level in stride. I mean, I think that President Biden is making a mistake by not asking Netanyahu to come to the White House. The fact is, you don't have to like him. He's the prime minister of a major ally. America wants to have a strong, powerful, strategic relationship with Israel. He should extend the invitation. These aren't socials where you invite your friends over, you know, for a cocktail and shoot the breeze about whatever. This is about core American interests in a region that still counts and there should be a good and functional relationship. So I think what Biden is doing, for whatever reason, strikes me as as petty and and unnecessary. But I try to maintain some kind of perspective that we as Jews are super attuned to how how is the relationship looking? But, you know, this is like a marriage that, you know, it's we're in it for the long haul. You know, it's it's not going to be like that marriage the couple, they're in their 90s, they go to the divorce lawyer, they say, we want a divorce, and the lawyer's like, what are you talking about? You're 95, she's 93. You know, you want a divorce now? What, what took you so long? Oh, we were waiting for the kids to die. I mean, it's not, it's not going to be like that. So uh, the last question, which I'd like to have you reflect on, has to do with looking to Israel's future. Yeah. With so many challenges, with hostile neighbors funded and armed by even more hostile enemies, the density of its population, its challenge with natural resources, the political and social fractures, both among Jews and between Arabs, so much of what we've talked about today, sort of what gives you hope? When I think about what gives me hope, thinking about our celebration of confirmation on this bima on Sunday with a remarkable group of 10th graders who, each of whom any of us would want our kids to grow up to be one of these young people for their commitment to their Judaism, their thoughtfulness, their care for their people and for each other. A confirmand from two years ago who is graduating this year, Delaney Sagan, is with us. Delaney's going to be a gator, which is good because his hair matches the color of the school that he's attending. 
wrote the following. He says, typically most people I meet have a very surface level view of Israel and its complications. What's the best way to elaborate on the intricacies, the issues with Israel? So to ask Delaney's question, how do we get more of a stronger understanding without just simply reading your column in the New York Times and reading Sapir, which I commend to everybody, and also reading publications like Times of Israel, Jerusalem Post, ways for us English readers to engage more fully with what's going on day to day with Israel. A, I would ask you sort of how do we continue to build our relationships? B, what I'd ask you is what gives you hope? What will allow Israel to sort of face the fundamental challenges that Yehuda Kurtzer, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute in North America, says the need to be accountable to its own morality and to keep on dreaming? There are a number of surveys of nations that try to gauge the happiness of different countries. They use a whole bunch of metrics, different surveys, but on all of these surveys, Israelis almost invariably rate as some of the happiest people in the world. And I always ask myself, you know, why, why is that? That's, that's sort of interesting. I mean, living life in Israel, I lived there for three years, is hard. It's a tough country to live in. You know, you're, you're sending your kids off to uh, dangerous military service. You're in Miluim. You're doing your own service in, until you're, you're, you're 40 years old. It's a claustrophobic country with all these Michigan people in it. There are threats, Iran, Lebanon, there's a war every couple of weeks. You're scurrying into your basement when, his, when, when Hamas is firing rockets. And yet, happy people. Why? My theory, born out from the anecdotal experience of, of me knowing hundreds of Israelis, is that Israelis have purpose-driven lives. When you're born an Israeli, a lot of your purpose is just handed to you. You are, as an Israeli, redeeming the promise of 2,000 years of exile. You are building a country and a culture and a civilization that is a miracle. You are doing so continuously against daunting odds, and you are having to use all of the powers of ingenuity and perseverance in order to succeed all the time. And you talk to a professor at the University of Chicago who sort of talked about what, what makes happiness. Happiness is, happens when you are continually confronted with challenges which you're just able to surmount. That's happiness, right? Challenges that are easy to surmount leads to boredom. Challenges that are impossible to surmount leads to despair. Happiness happens in between. And Israelis are happy. That is what gives me a profound sense of optimism. It's actually why I say to my wife, look, this, this country, that is to say United States, looks like it's going straight to hell, but I'd move to Israel you know, very, easy, you know, very, very happily once <laughs> the next election happens. <laughs> um, um, and and that's, what, that's what really gives me hope. By the way, this is unique in the democratic world. I don't think, I lived in Belgium a few years, lovely country. I don't think Belgians think, wake up in the morning and say, Ugh, I'm Belgian. I have a, a mission and a destiny. I don't think it happens really anywhere else in the world. And in some ways it means that the challenge of living in other democratic societies is harder because you have to generate your own sense of purpose. It's not really handed, it's not pre-installed in your software package. 
But it also means that Israel is going to have a reason to be for generations to come. And I think that reason to be is uniquely beautiful because I think Jewish culture, religion, civilization have something incomparably important to offer the world, whether as a light of nations or a light unto the nations, depending on, on how you want to translate it. This little community of 15 million people, this tiny, tiny minority in the world, is providing light in all kinds of dark corners. And to belong to that society, that country, that mission, is really something special. It's a privilege like none other. And it's one of the reasons why it's the most important aspect of my life, and I hope it's true for my children as well. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik wrote that when you think about the present, there really is no such thing. You're either just looking at the past or you're looking at the future. And the present is sort of how you orient yourself towards those two things. And I just can't thank you enough for giving us such an interesting perspective, both on Israel's past and on Israel's future, and for our future and past as American Jews and lovers of Israel. And God willing, uh, as you asked us, Delaney, we'll continue to cement those bonds and deepen those levels of understanding. And thank you so much for helping us with that project. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboka.org slash essentialquestions. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word, and we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at tbeboka.org. We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions podcast.